Prices are rising. Wages are falling. Profits are soaring. Will this be our future or will we choose a different one? Workers have started to fight back. Welcome to Tisky Sour. I'm Barnaby Rain, standing in for Michael Walker, and I'm delighted to be joined by Moya Lothian McLean. Moya, it's great to have you. Ah, oh, thank you. I think we've got a lot to talk about today, so I'm excited to crack on with the show. This week, 40,000 RMT members have gone on strike. They're not asking for a real terms pay rise. They just want to avoid their third year of real terms pay cuts as inflation soars, and they want to save over 2,000 jobs at risk of redundancy. Now, inflation and strikes may remind some people of the 1970s. That last crisis was resolved in the interests of capital, not workers. And we got five decades of growing inequality, increasing precarity, climate devastation, and a financial crash, and even talk of class struggles virtually disappeared. Well, now they're back as transport workers launch their biggest strike in 30 years. This time, though, it doesn't have to end the same way. Earlier, I spoke with RMT Assistant General Secretary Eddie Dempsey. I began by asking him to tell us about the background to this current strike. During the health emergency, we keep hearing the government say 16 billion was used to support the industry. And they even did calculations at 600 pounds per household and 160,000 per railway worker and all of these big figures. When the reality is something quite different. So I was uh, an official for the trade union when the pandemic hit. And at the time, my brief covered a huge number of train operating companies and senior people in the industry from the employer side were saying to me, that if the government doesn't step in and give us money, then we are going to go bust and we don't know if we can pay wages. So what that subsidy was, was in effect a bailout for private companies, much like what happened during 2008 when the government stepped in and bailed out all kinds of bankers and speculators. They did that with these private companies and millions and billions of that money went through our industry and left this country in the form of private profits and a lot of it went to private, went off to tax havens in Guernsey and the Cayman Islands and elsewhere. We've got companies that are called rolling stock leasing companies. You don't hear about these often, uh, but these are companies that sit in the background of the railway, are effectively conglomerations of banks, and they lease all of the trains on the railway network to the railway companies. And they've been around since the start of privatisation. You never hear about them, but they're extremely murky. They make millions and billions of pounds and their owner groups are off in the Cayman Islands. They're in Luxembourg. They're in Guernsey. They're in all of these tax havens. And in the worst pandemic year, three billion went to the rolling stock companies. Their costs are fixed. So when everyone else is told, you've got to tighten your belt, you've got to lose your job, these people's profits are fixed and they perform no service of any value to the industry. There is no reason for these companies to even exist, but they're there. There's one other element to this. So the government is stripping two billion out of the operational expenditure of the national railway. And in the national railways, that figure, it's not a coincidence. It's not been plucked out of thin air. When they privatised the infrastructure side of our railway, it was a complete disaster. We had a number of very serious catastrophes where people sadly lost their lives. And the company that the private company that operated our infrastructure, Railtrack, was basically, you know, painting signs, but letting a lot of the vital maintenance work go to pot. 
It was a backlog of nearly 10 years of vital maintenance work that wasn't undertaken. They had to take that company back into public ownership because the railways were in a complete mess. They were becoming extremely unsafe. And in order to get the money to do all of the maintenance work that hadn't been done, rather than just do it through capital expenditure as the government would do in every other industry, they allowed Network Rail, when it was formed, to issue bonds on the open market. And so they're sitting on a debt burden 25 billion deep. And every year it costs them 2 billion to service their debt. And that's the 2 billion they're stripping out of the railway now. And who are their bondholders? Well, surprise, surprise. They're the same banks and financial institutions that crashed the economy in 2008. It's your Goldman Sachs, it's your JP Morgan, it's these people. And so when they said, we've got to cut money out of the industry, we went to meet the employers and said, well, like any other company, you have got to restructure your debt. Don't tell me my members have got to lose their jobs when you are servicing the debt for financial institutions, some of them with a turnover the size of a small country. And they told me they can't afford it. Can you imagine that? So I said, well, if Goldman Sachs can't afford it, what makes you think some poor son who's got to get out of bed at five o'clock in the morning to shovel ballast around the place can afford it? But that's what we're facing. Uh, so 400 million of that two billion they want to strip out of network rail. And that's not a coincidence either, because next year, the bonds that mature, the bonds you've got to pay the coupon value on, that's 400 million. So when we brought this to the company in uh, negotiations when we started, I said, you know, this is what you're doing. You're robbing my, our members to look after the, the investments of, of banks who can well afford to have a haircut. And they said, those numbers are just a coincidence. You know, we've just found numbers that just magically match up. I mean, that's what we're facing. And that's the reality of the industry. It's been a license to print money. It's a racket that would make the mafia blush. And they want our members to join the dole queues so their friends in these companies can keep getting their money. Now, we think that's wrong. We think that's wrong in any industry. We think the whole industry should be nationalised. We think much of the economy should be nationalised. We should nationalise our health service again. We should drive the profiteers out of education. We should nationalise the energy industry, and we'd go further than that. I think we should have nationalised banks. And that's how you have an economy that works for the people. But instead, we've got a situation where our public services are used to launder public money, our money, through those industries and out of this country into tax havens. And we, see, we think that's a disgrace. Can you tell us how the Tory government has been involved in making this dispute worse and pushing it towards the, the point of a strike? The government has made the decision to strip four billion in operation expenditure in the railway and in London Underground. That is the source of rail austerity and transport austerity. So that's a political decision to start with. The second uh, way that they're in influencing uh, what's taking place is they have said in the public sector, pay is conditional upon workplace modernisation and workplace reform. Now, modernisation is just a euphemism for making people poorer, slashing jobs and making sure profits are protected. It's a euphemism. It's Orwellian doublespeak, war is peace. It's that sort of thing. Now, I've got an idea about what modernisation is. I think a modern idea is you go to work and you get a wage, that means you can live on it. I think that's modern. And I think people not having, be, having the fear of being uh, thrown out on a dole queue like what happened in p I think that's a modern thing to have employment law that protects people. I think it's modern to have good social housing so people can live in it. I think it's a modern thing for people to have, to have their kids educated without having to pay, a health service to look after when you're sick, 
and being able to retire in dignity. I think those things are modern. But this government, when they use words like modern, what they actually mean is smashing working class organisation, stripping back gains that trade unions have made, making people poorer and protecting the profits of their mates. The scale of change as proposed in the rail industry is truly eye-watering. And I can sum it up like this. It is a bid to roll back the last 30 years of trade union activity. That is what this is about. They want to reduce high wages. They want to extend working hours. They want to strip jobs out that we've protected. And they want to destroy all of the conditions that we've built up to make sure that when people go to work, their jobs are worth having. That is what this is about. And that is why I say that this is a class war. Now, it's not a class war waged by us. I know the government thinks that what we're doing here is some kind of Marxist conspiracy, but it's a class war by the government against working class people as a whole, because a lot of people recognise the RMT, small as though we might be in scale in the trade union movement, we do punch above our weight and we try to set the tone for the broader working class movement. We think at this point in time, people need to stand up and say, the economy's broken, society's broken, wages have been falling for 30 years, Corporate profits have been going through the roof and it has got to stop. Enough is enough. We have got to have a country run for the people that live in it and not for the bankers and speculators. What's your conception of class and of class politics? Teachers, nurses, postal workers, construction workers, we are inundated with support from particularly these sectors of people who are also feeling the pinch RPI, Retail Price Index, has gone to 11, 11.7% today. And they are all feeling that. And my only regret is that they're not further along in the process of getting ballots for industrial action secured and mandates to take on strike action. I'm really hopeful that will come later on in the year. Uh, in terms of conception of that class, I mean, it's a crazy thing. I mean, working class is so diverse in this country. It involves all kinds of people with all kinds of political ideas and all kinds of outlooks, including patriotic working class people, including people who think patriotism is wrong, including the people who have been here 10 minutes ago and people whose families have been here forever. That's a working class in this country. But the one thing that unites working people and working class people are their interests as workers. And you can't escape that. It doesn't matter what newspaper you read. It doesn't matter what you think about history, what you think about the British Empire, good, bad or indifferent and all the rest of it. What happens is when you go to work, and you find yourself in a crisis when your employer's trying to take money away from you and make you poorer, and when you're faced with landlords hiking your rent, when you're faced with a crazy bureaucratic benefit system that can't support you, when you've got to go to a food bank, that is when you're faced with the reality of your position in this country and your position as a working-class person. And I think the best leveller out there is when people find themselves in a dispute and I've seen it. I've stood on picket lines with people with political views completely different to mine, with religious outlooks completely different to mine. I'm an atheist. With diff different outlooks in a whole manner of different things. But when you're united in a fight together, you realise the things that are most important are not these various small differences, but the things that you hold in common. Uh, and when the X comes for jobs, it doesn't matter if you're black, white, whether you're a Catholic, a Protestant, a Muslim, it doesn't matter what you are. At that point in time, you're a worker, and that's the great leveller. And the Tory party will never understand that. They will never, ever get that, despite all of their overtures to people about, you know, let's wave the British flag and we think working-class people are, you know, a patriotic minority waiting for their voices to be heard. 
What they don't get is that they're on the other side of the class divide. And if people want to know where they stand in this economy, all they've got to do is have a look at their bank balance. And that's where the reality is. Once workers stop accepting falling living standards, defiance might be contagious. That terrifies the Conservatives because solidarity amongst workers is Tory kryptonite. Listen to former Tory Chancellor Ken Clark on Radio 4. This rail strike is, if it succeeds, going to give tremendous impetus uh, to a return to the old uh, wages, prices spiral that we suffered from in the 1970s and the 1980s. And it, the, I'm afraid that it, it cannot be allowed to look successful when it settles, because, as we've already heard, uh, the rest of the public sector, who are comparatively underpaid compared with railwaymen, past railway militancy and government weakness has made the railwaymen uh, at every level comparatively much better paid than comparable workers in the rest of the public sector. Governments always give in to them, usually. But on this occasion, if you, if the pay settlement is, is say, 10, 11 percent, uh, then you're going to have vast amounts of the public sector uh, induced to gain force the same militancy, the same strike action, in order to demand at least the same. For Ken Clark, it's vital the strike doesn't even appear to succeed. Presumably, that's why the government is refusing to negotiate directly with the RMT, because even negotiation is too close to the appearance of success. And Clark thinks the appearance of success can only lead to more demands from other unions. And that can't be allowed to happen. But we have bad news for Ken Clark. It's already happening. Both the National Education Union and the NASUWT have announced that they will call strike ballots if the government doesn't agree to improved pay for teachers. The teachers want an 8% increase below inflation, but have so far been offered only 3%. Joining them are postal workers, represented by the Communication Workers Union. They've notified Royal Mail of their intention to ballot their members over strike action against a measly 2% increase, a real terms cut after years of wage stagnation. And in what would amount to an historic turn of events, the unions representing NHS workers are set to ballot their members too. The UK College of Nursing have never called a strike before, but they're calling for a 5% pay increase for their members. Both Unison and the British Medical Association have said they may strike if pay demands are not met to combat runaway inflation. The Criminal Bar Association has announced a series of walkouts taking place over the next month. There's a lot to follow here, isn't there? That follows a 43% real terms fall in the legal aid budget since 2005. So how do the Tories defend themselves against this worker solidarity? In the only way they know how, by trying to turn workers against one another. Speaking to Sky's Kay Burley, Deputy Prime Minister Dominic Raab made exactly that move. How long are you going to let the strike go on for? We can't allow, I'm afraid, uh, the unions in this very militant way that they've proceeded uh, to win this argument because it will only hurt the poorest in our society. Why is it militant? They're exercising their democratic right to strike. Well, I think, uh, look, let me tell you why. I think there's been a £16 billion package funded by the taxpayer, the very people who are suffering uh, as a result of the, this disruption to trains. That's £600 per household in this country. Saying that you can't win in this negotiation and then disrupting uh, millions of people, including students who are trying to go and sit their exams, including... And, and by the way, Kay, it is always when we have these strikes, particularly when we're talking about the trains, that the, the, the blue-collar, uh, uh, workers suffer the most. The people that clean... Uh, well, they know that, the, but they've still voted to strike. 
Well, the, the, the RMT members have, but in broader, and that's just rail workers, but I'm just saying, the cleaners, the electricians, those who cannot work remotely, like many white-collar workers can using Teams, these are the ones that are being disrupted the most. So let's get this straight. The RMT is hurting blue-collar workers and the poorest, they say. But not only that, the railway workers were handed £600 per household during the pandemic. Well, the reality is that money was used to keep private rail companies afloat while customer numbers collapsed. It wasn't workers who were bailed out, but shareholders. And now they say workers should be grateful that the government didn't allow our whole rail network to collapse in a pandemic. Sometimes this strategy reveals itself in even more desperate forms. Tory MP Tobias Elwood has also appeared on Sky, and he was asked what he thought of the rail strikes. His answer was utterly bizarre. Well, I, I do hope, uh, you know, this, we're talking about the cost of uh, living crisis here. We face huge uh, economic headwinds, yet here we are causing such um, huge self-harm as the country is brought to a halt. I, I think Russia must be enjoying the self-inflicted distraction, pleased to see that uh, the one government in Europe that is actually standing up to Putin is completely distracted in this way. I, I do hope the unions now call off uh, future planned strikes. There's a new deal uh, on the table. This isn't just disrupting commuters, uh, including key workers, but also students as well. And indeed, the hospitality sector, such as uh, in Bournemouth, that's naturally, uh, that nationally, I think, will lose around £1 billion this weekend. It's also, can I say, Armed Forces weekend this Saturday. And that's where we say thank you to those who served and have served. I say to the unions, please don't be Putin's friend. This is a telling moment. In a crisis, the image of draining Western power stretches from Ukraine, where Boris Johnson marches around as a war leader, to every track and station where Johnson fights his war not against Putin, but against workers. And he believes they're one and the same. But what these Tories don't understand is that in a sense, the RMT have already won because they've reminded workers of the power that they have. As life gets harder and your wage is stretched and stretched again, it can be easy to forget how vital you are. It's not just defiance that's contagious. It's the reclaiming of dignity and power by workers and the recognition that strength comes with solidarity. Moya, can we expect a hot summer of resistance? I do think the RMT here have sent a shockwave through the UK population with such a strong showing. It will obviously depend on the outcome of this strike and whether the government do move to crush it, which we know they're capable of doing and well in the position where they want to do that. The question is whether other unions follow. I think the other thing we need to remember is that these unions cannot act alone. If we want to have a successful share of resistance, we need to be shoving at it from all sides, as I think Diane de Prima once said. Um, this needs to be a coherent strategy. And one thing the left have fallen down in the past is with a coherent strategy. So we can't just expect the unions to be fighting their corner and then not coming up with any other forms of resistance. This is a real opportunity. For example, there's a mass campaign that was launched this week called Don't Pay which is trying to build support for a bill strike in October if the government have not made moves to ensure that the energy crisis is affordable for everyday people. And that's just another example of this kind of resistance that we're seeing bubbling up. But this won't work unless we get people inside. And I think it's amazing to see, you know, RMT striking. But we also have, we who are not members of unions or, well, I'm a member of the National Union of Journalists, but 
if you're not a member of that particular union, if you're not, for example, in an organized labor movement yet, this is the time to get involved in some way because we need all these people on board in order to make this a summer of resistance that stretches far beyond just this season. RMT General Secretary Mick Lynch has been touring TV studios and it's been beautiful. Mick Lynch has previously said he would not negotiate with the Tory government. The head of the, you've said that, the, 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 he, the head of the, the head of, the head of, the head of, the head of, let me finish the point. Hang on, let me finish the point. The head of the, head of the, the head of the rail delivery group this morning on the Today programme said that he didn't want the uh, government in the negotiation. Um, we've made money available to the railway industry. It's up to the employers to negotiate with so, the trade so, so, unions. And what happened this afternoon was halfway through these negotiations, while they were ongoing, the unions lie. came out that's onto the street and gave an impromptu press lie. conference, I mean, a TV a direct footage, lie. saying that the strike was right. going to continue. Okay, that's let's just pause. Lie. Hang on. I mean, it's on video. Now, let, make, on video. Make Lynch, make Lynch, excuse me. Make Lynch, I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you a question. Would you be prepared to negotiate with the Tory government, yes or no? Absolutely. I've met every Tory transport minister in the last year, mm-hmm. bus, rail, maritime, and the Secretary of State. We've never said we won't meet the Tories. What we said was that they're not at the table. I'm negotiating with the employers. You've also lied that we left negotiations on Saturday and went to a rally. There were no negotiations scheduled for Saturday. You are a liar. Right, let's just hang on. There's a video of him walking out this afternoon giving a press conference. It's on videotape. And then we went back to the talks. You're lying. Having having said the strike's going to go ahead. You are a liar. Okay, well, let's just... You said the strike's going to go ahead. And you're a liar. It's on video. Let's You're a liar. <laughs> we were back at the talks this afternoon. We've just left them. And your network Chris, rail managers yeah. delivered statutory redundancy notices to us. That clip was interesting because it was a good example of something. Our media is dominated by people from a narrow class and by others who've learned to play by their rules. One rule is, you don't call people liars live on air. It's just not gentlemanly. The media is usually full of people who are in fact chums, pretending politely to be enemies. Journalists don't relate to British politicians as lying scum, but as respectable, well-meaning people. But like a sudden bolt, a worker gets on camera who knows his class are like aliens to these people, and he refuses to play by their rules. The RMT is at war, with a government actively intervening in this dispute to keep pay down. It's a class war, of course. The Tories want to fight inflation on the backs of the poor. Here we see, in all its glory, from Mick Lynch, actual contempt, the contempt that many of us feel for the ruling elite and the people who enable them. Let's go to another clip. On the first morning of the strikes, Kay Burley pretended to interview Mick Lynch. The government is saying that they are going to bring in agency workers. My question to you is, I'm guessing that some of your members will still stay on the picket lines. What will they do if agency workers try to cross those picket lines? Well, we will picket them. What do you think we'll do? We run a picket line and we'll ask them not to go to work. Do you not know how a picket line works? What do they do anyway? I very much know how a picket line works. I'm much older than I look, uh, Mr Lynch. Uh, What will will picketing involve? Well, you can see what picketing involves. I can't believe this line of questioning. Picketing is standing outside the workplace to try and encourage people who want to go to work not to go to work. What else do you think it involves? And what if they want... Well, I just wondered what else it might involve, because I very well remember uh, the picket lines of the 1980s, Mr Lynch. I'm asking you what your members would do, Mr Lynch. Which picket lines are you talking Uh, about? The miners' strike. Miners' strike. Yeah. Does it look like the miners' strike? (laughs) 
What no, are you talking about? No, he doesn't, Mr. Lynch, and I'm just asking, I'm just to clarify. She's just gone off into I'm the world of the surreal. Uh, no, Mr. Lynch, and I'm sorry if you feel the need to ridicule me, but I'm just asking you what you expect your members no, to your do. Your questions if agency are, are workers... virgin into the nonsense. I'm we asking you. As effectively no, not. We can. And what does that involve? <laughs> Look, there it is. That's what it involves. So you won't stop agency. You won't stop agency workers crossing the picket line. We will try to stop agency workers crossing the picket line by asking them not to go to work. What is it you're suggesting we will and if do? They... I'm just asking you. I'm trying to clarify for the benefit of the British public Clari who are being stopped from travelling around the country, Mr Lynch. I'm just trying to clarify exactly what, what your members are you're trying to clarify? And ask politely. I'm, I, thank you for... Uh, I'm replying to you politely. ...to answer the question. What we will... OK, Mr what Lynch. We, I've answered I'm the question about you. six times. If there okay, are people trying to cross the picket line, so we ask them again. not to cross I'm it. Asking, <laughs> I'm asking questions on behalf of my viewers this morning, Mr Lynch. I'm very sorry if you find it offensive. Early wants to plant an image in her audience's minds, striking railway workers as violent thugs. She's trying to bait Lynch into losing his temper, but he has absolutely no interest in engaging with her questions. Mick Lynch is refusing an ideological framing that's hardly ever challenged on TV, where poverty is very sad until people start to do something about it, and then they become the villains. We seem to have gone off into the world of the surreal, Lynch says. And he's right, but there's nothing unusual about that. Our whole media debate is a surreal circus until someone bursts it open. Unbelievably, Burley tweeted that clip to her half a million followers, and this is how she framed it. Agency rail workers will be stopped at picket lines and asked not to cross. Shocking. RMT Union's General Secretary Mick Lynch got a little flustered explaining why. We have eyes, Kay. Notice that if you're not the kind of person the media respect, the kind they treat as mature and intelligent, then you're emotional and flustered. These are the kinds of ideological assumptions of our society where the rich and powerful get to speak and others are just thugs. We're going to show you one more clip. This is Mick Lynch on BBC Politics Live, serving swift justice to the Parliamentary Labour Party, representing by Shadow Cabinet member Jenny Chapman. Keir Starmer made it clear that for the Shadow Cabinet, and it was not helpful for us to be on the picket line, and he's absolutely right. We shouldn't be uh, putting ourselves in positions that make this worse. We are getting up every day trying to make lives better for our constituents. All right, well, let's we put that to me in government. Well, let's see if we Mick Lynch agrees with you. What, what, what do you say to what you just heard from Jenny Chapman in terms of what the Labour Party's position is towards these strikes? Well, the Labour Party was founded by the trade unions. In fact, it was founded by my trade union, the original resolution. So that's ironic because we're not affiliated. And one of the reasons we're not affiliated is because Labour politicians since Blair have not identified with working class people. And failing to do that is one of the problems they've got in working class communities. And they've left the door open to populists and others to come into the situation. The Labour Party is about supporting working people, or it should be, not triangulating uh, from uh, opinion makers such as the Daily Mail and the Telegraph and the Times. So they've got to sort out their identity and they've got to come up with a set of policies that are going to relieve working class poverty, are going to give us a stable workplace with good conditions and good minimum standards. That's what the Labour Party should be about. I welcome anyone that wants to join us 
on our picket lines and show us messages of support. All right. Well, you're if more... Keir Starmer can't do that, that's a, a, th a problem for him, not for us. Jenny? But Keir Starmer wants to be Prime Minister. And in order to get that job, he needs to show that he's the sort of person who wants to resolve these kinds of disputes. And actually, Mick, you don't know anything about my background or my community or where I come from. So, I can't even see you, know, you. I don't even know no, who you are. So no. Well, there you go. So, you know, don't <laughs> tell me who I am and whether or not I'm working class or whatever, any of those sorts of things. I didn't tell you things. you weren't working class. I don't, I don't even know your name. Mick Lynch doesn't care about Jenny Chapman and he doesn't care whether she wants to call herself working class or not. He's not interested in parliamentary intrigue and politicians' gossip. Where the media see an endless list of interest groups fighting each other, railway workers against doctors and teachers who need to get into work, the RMT says that kind of squabbling over crumbs only benefits the few who profit. They're brilliant because they're defining themselves as part of a class who know where their real enemy lies. Moya. One poll showed 58% of people supporting the RMT strike, which was quite surprising given all the incessant uh, negative media coverage. Is something changing here? I think there are a couple of factors that have contributed to this, and these are positive. One is, of course, the brilliant performance by Mick Lynch. And I think it's important to note that Mick Lynch, we shouldn't individualise him. It's fantastic performance that he's put on in the media, but he is the front of a union that is the whole point. He's not there to self-promote, as was suggested earlier on BBC Politics Live. He is there to represent the people behind him. And as we saw from Eddie Dempsey, these are people who are really class conscious, who know their stuff and can speak on behalf of the people they're representing, but they don't want to individualize themselves. So Mick Lynch's performance has definitely been one factor. A second thing I think is that we are in this period of the cost of living crisis. People are getting desperate. They're starting, I think, to recalibrate where allegiances should lie. And the more that they feel, you know, out of control, the more that they feel like there is no sort of way through, the more they are looking for these alternatives. And finally, finally, when people push the brink, perhaps we start seeing a return to this class consciousness and a recalibration of where allegiances should lie. And there's a third thing, I think, that is contributing to this more positive reception of the RMT strike. And I think the media have done this themselves. They keep citing the 1970s and the 1980s and the miners' strikes. And they're doing this in a way to try and make implications about, you know, this idea of like the miners and evoking images of miners going up against police, implying in that one interview we saw with Kay Burley that, you know, the miners responded violently. But they've forgotten that in the interim period, there's been a lot of historical scholarship which has showed exactly what happened with the miners' strike, exactly how badly the miners were treated. And the miners are now applauded, I would say, for their bravery and for their solidarity. We had films like Pride in 2014, which was a huge hit, which showed the links and solidarity between, you know, gay and lesbian activists and striking miners. There's been a massive revision of how the miners were treated and received in the years between the miners' strike and now. And by evoking that, what they're doing, I think, is actually building solidarity between people and building a warmer reception for the RMT workers by creating positive connotations, which is not what they're intending to do, but it is what's happening. It's interesting, Moya, you talk about those broader solidarities, because um, in the period since the 2019 election, we have seen the emergence of a set of social movements not focused explicitly around questions of class but fighting to save our planet from total destruction and extinction rebellion, uh, fighting to demand that black lives matter and to reassess colonial legacies and their continuing presence. 
fighting against legislation, the Kill the Bill movement against legislation that would crush civil liberties and especially target, say, Roma people. Do you think there's a possible linking now where we can see a revived industrial antagonism, workers saying we're workers and we don't want a surplus value to be extracted from our labor, and black people saying we want to fight racism and women saying we want, as people did after the murder of Sarah Everard, saying we want to be safe on the streets? Because all of these things are about people wanting to live in freedom and safety and dignity. Could these things all come together? Well, I I hope they all come together. I think there's scholarship out there that's beginning to be done. And in popular discussions as well, Eddie Dempsey earlier was talking about, you know, the subjectivity of the worker, the identity of the worker as the first and foremost place. And there's a really good book that is out now. It was released this week. It's called Reclaiming Anti-Racism. And it's by Asfa Shafi and Ilyas Nagdi, which actually looks at the history of anti-racism movements in the UK and how they were workers' movements. They, they weren't separate things. The idea of anti-racism from below and the idea of socialism from below were completely integrated because people understood that, you know, your position as a worker will be affected by your position as a, you know, a person of color or a woman or the way these identities intersect. But first and foremost, if you build solidarity via your working identity, you can create these coalitions with other people. And then you come together and create those movements, which address these concerns on all fronts. The workers' movements of the 1970s, the grassroots ones, were also anti-imperialist. And that class consciousness, I think, will allow a much more um, cohesive, united movement. We've also seen this, for example, recently in Dalston with immigration raids on delivery workers, where you're understanding that these people are being subjected to the state violence because they are seen as, you know, migrants who are not usually racialized as white. But there's also that identity as a gig economy worker and people came out and they stopped these immigration raids. So I think these dots are starting to be added up again. And I think I think it's also because of a de-investment in the state. People are realizing the state is not coming to save them, whether that is, you know, the conservatives who are just heaping oppression upon oppression, or whether that is labor who is just doing absolutely nothing. And we had, I think I would say, some of the left did invest in the state between 2015 and 2017, because we thought that there might be like this top-down sort of social democracy, but we're aware that's not going to happen now. And also that maybe that's not the most useful way. So there's a returning to that, you know, grassroots class consciousness. And from there, other things follow. So it can only be a good thing. We have one political party founded by workers, including rail workers, to represent them. So what's Keir Starmer been up to this week? The Labour leader has banned shadow cabinet members from RMT picket lines. As the Huffington Post reports, An email from Keir Starmer's office to shadow cabinet members inviting them to a Zoom meeting on the strike said, we do not want to see these strikes go ahead with the resulting disruption to the public. The message added, however, we also must show leadership and to that end, please be reminded that front benches should not be on picket lines. Please speak to all the members of your team to remind them of this and confirm with me that you have done so. All he wants is to stop the strikes. Well, We all want a world where trains run on time, but not if it means the powerful doing as they please and workers silently paying any price. As Rousseau said, there is peace in a dungeon, but that does not make it desirable. Compare and contrast. That was Starmer. Here's the RMT General Secretary, Mick Lynch. The whole country is suffering and we have got a membership and a trade union that is prepared to fight for what we've got. What the rest of the country suffers from is the lack of power, the lack of the ability to organise and the lack of the wherewithal 
to take on these employers that are continually driving down wages and making the working class in this country poorer year on year on year, while the rich get richer and dividends are accelerated and the stock market is reasonably healthy. We've got full employment. We've got full employment and falling wages. And that is a situation that has never happened before and it cannot be tolerated by working people or by the trade union movement. It's striking here that Lynch is talking about power. Most of our lives, we live dependent on the will of others, bosses and states and the impersonal whims of the market. In a strike, for just a moment, workers take back control. A whole social order that relies on its underlings producing wealth they don't control is suddenly a bit more transparent when those workers flex their power. So this is not just about inequality, it's about freedom. Will we be slaves to a world not built for us, or will we build a world where we can flourish? Keir Starmer's politics are utterly different. He worries about any association with this strike because he sees politics in conventional terms, different interest groups battling for themselves with the nation and the state as the things that bring us all together. As prices began to rise, Starmer banned his own employment spokesperson from supporting a £15 an hour minimum wage, so that spokesperson had to resign. As the Tories cut benefits and send refugees to Rwanda, Starmer cannot promise to reverse either policy. And now, when workers get poorer and fight back, he won't even stand next to them in a line. Clearly, his politics are not about championing the exploited and oppressed and dreaming of a world without hierarchies of power and wealth. But Starmer says it's a patriotic duty to celebrate the monarchy and NATO, whose bombs fall all over the world. We're seeing an old tradition playing out here, where social democrats think they must prove their loyalty to all the hierarchical institutions of the British state because they don't really believe we can pull those things down and live, all of us, in freedom. Moya, Mick Lynch or Keir Starmer, who do you prefer? Oh, what a bait question, Barnaby. You know who I prefer. I don't even know if it's, if it's fair to call Keir Starmer a social democrat, given he's so far to the right. I don't even think he warrants that name. But again, I, obviously, I would prefer Mick Lynch to be the lead of the Labour Party. But I, I think I want to go back to that point I made earlier about not individualizing Lynch, because even though, as I said, he's fantastic, he is the representation of thousands of voices who are also fantastic. And the reason that he's sticking out so much, as we've touched upon in this program, is because there just doesn't seem to be anyone like him within our parliamentary system or within our mainstream media system. And the people who might come from the same backgrounds as Mick Lynch, like, for example, well, Keir Starmer says he does, but the people who come from the same backgrounds as Mick Lynch, the ones who are allowed in those spaces are quickly institutionalized, or as Keir Starmer has done, bend themselves to succeed within the confines of those systems. So it's difficult to imagine a future where, you know, you say, oh, I want Mick Lynch to be the lead of the Labour Party. But do we actually want that? Or do we want this grassroots movement to make something like the Labour Party obsolete? I would love the Labour Party to go out of business at this stage, because I think it is an unredeemable organ of the state, to be honest. There is a problem, though, isn't there, that we saw a period of, as you said, enthusiasm about the political party form, which was in Britain, the Labour Party under Corbyn, left-wing enthusiasm for an electoral strategy for socialism. Now we feel that party forms lost to us and we return to the streets in various forms, social movements and unions. 
is that enough? I mean, do we do we not need a way of, of of connecting various individual struggles to? I mean, part of the miserable thing is we've got an eighty seat Tory majority, whatever it is, got lots of struggles in the streets, but no party form, no political institution capable of connecting those and articulating a clear story of the kind I was just trying to tell, where this is about all of these struggles are about empowering people and making people free. In an ideal world, we would have a brand new, well, not even an ideal world. In the world that I think is probably the best utopia we could come up with within the confines of Britain, which again is a limit of political imagination and maybe someone else who has a broader political imagination than me should be doing this imagining. But we'd have a brand new party that actually did represent workers. But then would it just get swallowed into the same confines and the state and the institutions that have always been oppressing and suppressing these more radical forces. But I think Labour, as I said, it's, it's, it's a vehicle that cannot be changed. We've tried that and it doesn't work. So we need something brand new to come in. Whether that is feasible or not within Britain, I don't know, but we have to dare to dream, I think. But again, this grassroots, that is where the action begins. That is where your political strategy starts. That is where you get the energy. Everything should come back to the grassroots, whether you want to start a new political party or not. Because without the grassroots, you're just top down. And top down is an immediate failure. Yeah, it's, it's certainly notable that every time people despair of total defeat, as they did after Corbyn's defeat on the British left, actually, we're in a period now where people are angry. And even if they don't have political representation for their anger, there are enough people who want to fight and who will find ways of doing so. I remember in what Moya said, those old warnings of Ralph Miliband back in the 1970s, that if you are a socialist in the Labour Party, you are having to deal inside an enemy institution full of your enemies. What we draw from that, I'll leave other people to conclude. Today is Windrush Day, and the government has spent £1 million on this statue. It's to celebrate those who came from the Caribbean in order to rebuild this country after World War II as part of that Windrush generation. The statue was unveiled by Prince William. A statue, a day, a special celebration with the royal family. It all sounds lovely, but thousands of people from that Windrush generation are still awaiting compensation after living here for decades and then being targeted by this government's hostile environment for migrants. Meanwhile, an earthquake struck today in Afghanistan, one of the poorest countries on earth, torn apart by a decade of imperial war, and now abandoned to poverty while thousands of Afghans battle to get out of the mess that Britain helped to create. 23,000 Afghans are still waiting for resettlement in Britain. And when a court, the European Court of Human Rights, stops Britain from deporting vulnerable people to Rwanda, British MPs and ministers, who lecture other countries about the rule of law, threaten to leave that court. There is one common thread in all these stories. The British Empire was built on the sweat and blood of people all over the world, profits amassed from their labor. And when those people want even basic dignity, they're treated with just the kind of contempt that railway workers are treated with when they dare to go on strike. Moya, how should we be marking Windrush Day? Oh, I mean, the answer to that would be so expansive. It would take me 10 years. I think, obviously, what we should be doing is rather than these performative empty gestures actually going some way to making restorative justice, whether that is, you know, processing the right to stay in the UK for those Windrush descendants who still have not received that clarity and safety, or, you know, talking about actually making Caribbean countries starting the process of letting them become republics or, 
you know, um, starting the reparations conversation. There's so many other ways we could talk, be talking about Windrush Day and what we do on Windrush Day, but it's still mired in the same old, oh, we put up a statue and that's good. And Prince William has actually said something about discrimination and that's really good too. It's all gesture politics. For example, today I was sent a GoFundMe for Windrush descendant, Yvonne Williams, who is still fighting for her rights to stay in the UK. And she has, she cannot work. She cannot claim any benefits. She relies on her daughter, who is a single mum in a low paid job. And she now owes more council tax. She has a council tax debt because of these struggles, because of her position as a Windrush descendant. And this is the way that the government actually materially treats these people. They apologize, but they don't actually do anything to change their circumstances, circumstances that come about solely because of the racism and discrimination that was created all those years ago and has continued. And, you know, now we have a hostile environment that has only got worse. It's not getting better. Even as this visibility of Windrush is increasing, we are having an ever more hostile environment and we're trying to deport people to Rwanda, as you pointed out. That to me shows the massive gap between what the government is saying these gestures and what is actually being done. And the question is, what are we going to do about it on the ground? Because as we've talked about, and the theme of this entire episode today of Tiski has been grassroots. The government are not going to change things. So we have to do something. And the question is, what is our long-term strategy when it comes to state violence against marginalized people, particularly those who have migrated here years ago and are now at the hands of the hostile environment? The tokenism is just amazing, isn't it? It's a bit like the Tories saying they can't be racist because they've got uh, people of colour in the cabinet. It's a bit like Jenny Chapman saying to Mick Lynch that it's very important to her that she's working class as she attacks strikes. You know, and Aaron Bevan used to say, I don't care where you come from, I care where you're going. Um, but the, the same tokenism applies now to, we'll build a statue, give a little bit of money, while failing to give compensation to very many people who need it. I mean, they're also planning a statue, a, a big new memorial to the Holocaust. And a friend of mine, who's a rabbi, uh, said the other day, if they really want to commemorate the Holocaust, they should uh, not build a big monument, but let refugees in. So there's this kind of wave of tokenistic commemoration, where memorialization is actually a way of trying to forget things and not actually talk about things. Well, how can we intervene politically to, to, to highlight the difference between that kind of tokenism and real restitution? Gosh, that's a, that's also a big question. And I was actually there when Rabbi Gluck said that. It was a fantastic speech. Uh, that is a really big question, Barnaby. How can we intervene politically? I think, first of all, you've got to get your group around you. You've got to get that community support that I keep banging on about. But you do. You have to go outside. You have to talk to people. A lot of, I think, the ways that left can get mired in, you know, debating the merits of this gesture politics is through social media instead of going outside and talking to your neighbors and discussing sort of material conditions of the people around you and what faces them. I live in a borough in London, which has a very high demographic of people of colour, particularly descendants from Windrush migrants, um, African Caribbean individuals. And, you know, it'd be a much better place for me to go out and actually talk to these people and just see how I can get involved in what they want and what they see as restitution rather than me sort of prescribing it based on what I see in social media. So I think that's the main thing. We need to talk to these communities and make sure we're having this ongoing discussion, but we also need to link it up with that work of solidarity again and again and again. I was talking to Rohan Khan of the Acorn, Acorn Tenants Union, and she was saying one of the reasons Acorn is so successful is because they go to communities and they say, you know, they talk to them with the dignity 
and respect that they deserve rather than sort of preaching them saying this is what we're going to do for you they say what do you what's actually what the material needs that you have okay this is how we're going to fight with you for this solidarity is all the way and the more that we exercise that and we're starting to see that upswing in that sort of like action through those stopping of immigration raids through standing shoulders to shoulders through those rallies where you have people from every different community coming together and talking about their own individual experiences, but linking it to that wider sort of state violence and saying, this is what the community needs. How can we lend you our hand and you lend us your hand? When we see that surge again, then, you know, we'll succeed. But the worker subjectivity comes first, which I think we've talked about quite a lot. And I think first and foremost, you have to go to those communities and, you know, actually listen. Listening is the first step. Well, that has indeed been the theme of our show tonight. Linking struggles supporting them all, understanding that fights against racism, fights against patriarchal domination, fights against exploitation and alienation from bosses and from the impersonal domination of the capitalist system, all of these are ways of denigrating and abusing people. And we want to fight all of them together. So a message from us at Navara, if you're in a union, invite a rail worker to your union branch. If you're not in a union, join one. Invite rail workers on strike now to your community groups, uh, to your churches and religious societies. Make sure you're doing what you can to support rail workers and to support all of the wave of struggles that are coming in this hot summer of resistance. As workers say not, we want to push inflation higher, but we want the cost of this crisis to be borne by bosses and landlords, by those who can afford to pay for it, not by the working class. That's the political struggle. Who will pay the price for this crisis? The Tories say there's no alternative to making the poor pay. We say there is. Thank you so much, Moya. It's been wonderful uh, being with you this evening. Thanks for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure to get into it tonight. And I think really positive as well. We're starting to see some hope again and that puts fire in my belly. Same here. And thank you everyone for watching tonight. I've been Barnaby Rain, standing in just briefly for Michael Walker. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.